When was the last time you were asked, where is your church? How many here have been asked, where's your church? What's usually our answer? Well, there's two answers we could give. One is we could give them an address, right? 13450 North Plaza del Rio Boulevard, right? We could give them an address. And that's usually what we think of when we think of church. We think of the building in which we meet. But the biblical church, the word in the New Testament for church is gathering. There was no such thing back then as a building that they met in. You know, there was the temple, but that wasn't uh, quite what we picture as modern day church. So where are the people? So I used, to, I, I used to tell people is that if anybody asks you where the church is, look at your watch and look at a calendar. Where's the church? Where's your church? Well, if it's any day but Sabbath, then I don't know where they are. If it's Sabbath and it's between the hours of, right, a certain time, I can tell you exactly where they are. Where? They're here. Now, you ask two Adventists, you'll get three opinions on what it means to observe the Sabbath, on what it means to keep the Sabbath, on what it means to remember the Sabbath. Sabbath simply means rest. In fact, the word means rest itself. So when you're saying happy Sabbath, you're saying happy rest. Happy rest, just rest, peaceful rest. Shabbat Shalom is almost, almost redundant. Peace and rest. But that's what it means. But I do remember becoming one, an Adventist, and being indoctrinated about the time. That was the first thing I was indoctrinated about about the Sabbath, was the time. Seventh day, Saturday, sundown Friday, to sundown Saturday. And it's interesting, what's real interesting was I was fascinated on how well or how prevalent every church member knew when sundown was. It was everywhere. It was posted in our bulletin board. It's posted in, in the recorder. You, when you got your recorder, it's in the back. There's a sunset table there. If you have an offering schedule, it's posted there. And that was all before the internet was created. You know how many, you type in sunset right now into Google, sunset time, Peoria, Arizona. You know that there are three million hits? I used to have three separate apps. I just thought that they were cool because one was an app that automatically lit candles at sunset uh, on, on, on Friday. Sunset would happen on Friday and the app would come up on my phone and there'd be candles burning. The time. So it's interesting if you've ever had the pleasure of moving to what I call an institutional town. That is where there is an Adventist institution, either a very large hospital or a university or both. Because what happens is the time that we usually reserve for our purposes, you know, our church, our local church, our homes, that's when we reserve the time. That's when we talk about, well, what time is sunset? Usually it's just us, right? But when you get to an institutional town, it, it, it becomes institutionalized. The community realizes it or acts on it. I've lived in two institutional Adventist communities. And they were both around colleges. 
And the one was a small town that had only one supermarket that was owned by the college. And every other day, it was open until eight o'clock at night. But on Friday, it closed when? It closed at three. And everybody living in Angwin knew that. It closed at three o'clock. At the seminary in Bering Springs, there used to be, when I went to the seminary in the, in the 90s and, and in the 80s and certain, there were two supermarkets in town. One was owned by the university. The other was owned by a local family who didn't happen to be Adventist. Apple Valley, the, the market that was owned by the university, on Fridays, it always closed at three. In the winter, I think it even closed even earlier. In the winter, I think it closed at 2.30. While Schrader's, the other market, maintained their business hours. They were open regular time on Friday, which meant that on Friday after three o'clock before sundown, and sometimes a little after sundown, where did you find nearly every Adventist in Bering Springs? At Schrader's. Hurriedly running up and down the aisles, looking at their watches, trying to get out of there. Not probably so much that they were concerned about being in there after sundown, but pretty much being concerned about someone else seeing them. Steve Case, longtime uh, youth author and director and, and uh, uh, worker in, in, in the union in the Northern California Conference, uh, has written several books, said that when he was at seminary, there was one day, one Friday, when he was feeling really good because he was already in line and it was still 10 minutes to sundown and I was feeling real good about myself because my, my groceries were almost bagged and I was feeling real good. And I looked over at the door and I saw a couple of friends of mine and I thought, there's no way they're gonna make it. And the, the boy grab, uh, bagging the groceries was not moving fast enough for the cashier. And the cashier finally whispered in an off-Broadway whisper that could be heard anywhere, said, will you please hurry up? Don't you realize we've gotta get these Adventists out of here before their sundown? <laughs> and Steve remembers how he felt when he went to his car. He thought, is this really what we're about? Is this really what we want to teach our community? So, we began last week to hit that Adventist sweet spot to begin to study again the three angels' message. Now, we know that the three angels' message, and we've always believed that Sabbath is part and parcel to the three angels' message, is it not? It always has been. It's been linked by language. It's been linked by everything else. But let me ask you this. In the three angels' message, during the, uh, the preaching of the three angels' message, do you think what I just described is what these angels were talking about? That kind of experience? What we grew to modern times to believe it meant to remember, to observe, to rest? So I'd like to take a look at that today. What will the message be like? I believe it'll have a Sabbath component also. But what I want to know is what, what, does it, what shape does it take at the end? Remember that the three angels' message is a, is a message for when? For the end. So no matter when you studied the three angels' message last, no matter the last time I preached through it, it's always more end than it was before, right? So there should be a fresh look at it every time. 
Because if, if, if we had done this last year and now I'm doing it again, it's more end now than it was last year, right? We are closer to the end now than we were. So the message should always, the end time, it should always at least reflect what's going on in our lives. And it may be different. Certainly, I've begun to teach it and preach it different than when I first joined the church. And hopefully all of us have. Because hopefully all of us have grown and matured and Jesus has been revealed to us. And hopefully the Sabbath has been revealed to us to be more and more and more than we ever dreamed it could be. So we begin the message itself. Last week we look at the people. This week we begin the message itself. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. How old is this message? It's eternal. It's not old. It's completely old, right? It's not new. There's nothing new about this. Because we know that it's the gospel. We know that the three angels' message is the gospel being preached in the end time. In other words, what does the gospel look like when being preached in the, in the last days of earth, if you will? It's eternal. It'll have a special end time shape, but it isn't new. And its root is the same. Because remember who's preaching it. What we learned last week, these, the, that first angel pointed these out to John. The other angel begins to proclaim. But this one, it says, they haven't defiled themselves. They're virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and for the lamb. Those are the preachers of the three angels' message. Those are the ones that, that get to proclaim it. We know this message is about the Lamb. And all the followers of the Lamb can talk about is Him. All they can proclaim is Him. They don't go anywhere without Him. They follow Him wherever He goes. And in this particular case, this message is proclaimed where? Everywhere. Everywhere. It reminds us of chapter 10 when, when uh, the angel told John, you must prophesy again about peoples and nations and language and kings. John himself will not do the prophesying this time. It will be done by those people that we saw at the beginning of the vision. It'll be done by us. The message is about Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his heavenly enthronement, his judgment, his second coming. The gospel includes all that. Every mighty act done for God by us is done in Christ. That is the message. That's what we're here for. It falls to us, the remnant, those who keep the commandments, and yes, the fourth one, and hold the testimony of Jesus. But I want to find out, I want to look at the Sabbath component of this and find out what it sounds like. That's what I'd like to know what the message sounds like. All the message begins with is what kind of voice? A loud voice. He says in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of water. The gospel is proclaimed. Fear God, give him glory. And it's said in a loud voice. In Greek, literally, it says, phone megale. It is using a megaphone. 
It is a loud voice. But I, what, it, what I picture is, is he yelling? Is he screaming? Is the volume what he's talking about here? My friend Nathan Green, I, I do get to drop his name, who painted this. He didn't interpret that way. That angel doesn't look like he's screaming, does it? No. That's what I'd like to know. The loud voice. What does it sound like? What makes it loud? Fear God, give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. There are four components to the end time gospel, if you will. Number one is, fear who? Fear God. Does that mean we're supposed to be afraid of God? No, we just spent 17 weeks looking at a church that uses fear to get, the, to get them to worship its God, right? The church of the beast uses fear, force, coercion. This can't be that. Revere, hold him in awe. This is what he gets to, to hold us, to be in awe of, that the God of the universe would take each and every human into account and offer them a face-to-face, -face, walking, talking relationship. There you go. That's what it means to fear God, to ponder that, to be in awe of that, that he would come and live and die so that every human being would have the opportunity to walk and talk with him and be at one with him. That's what we are in fear of. That's what we are in awe of. We should fear not having that. We should be afraid if he doesn't do that. Fear God. By the way, Merry Christmas. That's the first part of the message. That he would come and do this, and we celebrate it every year, however it is that we do celebrate it. Two Adventists, three opinions, right? But that's the message. Fear God, give him glory. And why does he only deserve this glory? It's not easy. Is it easy to give God all the glory? Okay, it's only difficult for me. That's right. I didn't see. Two of us. It's only difficult for two of us. The rest of you should write a book on how to give God all the glory. But it isn't easy. We like glory. You know why? We figure stuff out, don't we? We figure stuff out like which day is the seventh day and what time sundown is. We figure that stuff out, don't we? And then we can substitute our glory for his. How do I know I'm worshiping on the right day? I look at my watch. How do you know it's time? <laughs> I have a chart, I figured that out. By the way, the recorder says that sundown is 520 in the valley. In surprise, it's 521. <gasps> judgment. The hour of his judgment has come. See, by the time that we get here, we're being introduced to the worshipers in the church of the Lamb. That's what their message is. We've already been introduced to the false church, the church of both beasts, right? So again, two churches, two gods, two forms of worship, 
And what's been called upon is to judge between the two. That's what this judgment is. God has placed himself in our judgment from the beginning. Judge me. It isn't necessarily his judgment about us because his judgment about uh, any other form of worship, his judgment about any other way to approach life, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He's already judged that. Sin has already proved to equal death. It's been judged. It was judged in the garden. It was judged in the manger. It was judged at the cross. It was judged at the resurrection. And it's judged every time somebody proclaims the gospel. Judgment between life and death, between the true God and the false God, is happening right now because we are hearing the gospel. The hour of his judgment has come. It's here. It's not in the future. It's now. It happens every day. Every day that we choose between life and death. Every day that we choose to worship the true God or worship the false God. Every day we want to enroll either in the church of the lamb that was slain or the church of the beast. Judgment's already been pronounced. It has come. And if you want to know how God feels about our little experiment to try to bring life and create it for ourselves, all you have to do is look at the cross. Look in the face of Jesus that day. He's judged it. And our way has been truly, truly found wanting, isn't it? So take a look at the summary again. Worship him. Why is it we worship him? Because he created heaven and earth. That's a pretty good reason to worship a God. If he created everything, if he gives life to everything and everybody, that's a pretty good reason to give him glory. Worship him who created what? Heaven and earth, the sea, and what? The springs of water. Now, these words don't sound like the Genesis narrative of creation, does it? It doesn't sound like Genesis 1 and 2. It doesn't sound like it at all. I'll tell you what it does sound like, and we're getting excited, aren't we, Adventists? This is where our ears perk up, and we get excited because of what this sounds like, what we think of when we hear this. The creation account is not in Genesis that John is recalling. The creation account is in Exodus, and it begins this way. Remember the Sabbath day and what? And keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and concentrated. There it is, right? There it is. This is what John is recalling. This is why we believe the end time message or the three angels message has a Sabbath component. The very language that he uses harkens back to the commandment, not to the Genesis narrative, but to the commandment. For in six days, you have in common the Lord. And why does Revelation and Exodus say we should worship the Lord? Because he what? Made heaven and earth, the sea 
and all that is in them and the springs of water. Dr. John Pauline, um, New Testament professor and also dean of our, um, uh, of our religion department at Loma Linda, who spends his life on Re- Revelation, can tell us this. He says that in Revelation, it is the most relatable book to the Old Testament because it has more allusions to the Old Testament than anywhere else. There are no direct quotes. John never directly quotes from anywhere in the Old Testament. What he does is he alludes to them by the words that he uses. And in this particular case, out of the four components in this, three of them match. And Dr. Pauline would tell us that's as close as a direct quote as you're gonna come. He has absolutely no doubt, no scholar would have any doubt to conclude that John wants us to be alluded to the Sabbath. He doesn't have anything else in mind. Why? Just look at the language. But that also, the Sabbath was supposed to be a memorial to what? To creation. Every seventh day, we're supposed to remember that he created and he rested on the Sabbath. It's supposed to hearken back to creation every time that we celebrate it, every time that we keep it. It comes up every week. And history might bear that out. Our history might bear that out. See, when we look at the history our history, if you will, going back to the 1840s. When did the first angel's message begin to be proclaimed in this nation, in this relatively new nation? What have we always taught? Our predecessors, the Millerites, are the ones that began to look. Dr. Uh, Reverend Miller looked at the message and he thought that it was timely. He didn't have the Sabbath component part of it, but he certainly had the creation part of it. And so we always taught that the first angel's message began to be preached by the Millerites themselves. And then we, after the great disappointment in 1844, we began to pick it up. So much to the fact that we believe that this is why we're here, right? Our entire church is founded on the proclamation of this message. From 1844 to 1849, we didn't know what to do. The great disappointment had thrown everybody for a loop. It was just a handful of these kids, these kids and one old man, trying to figure out what to do. And from 1844 to 1849, they discovered the five distinctive truths of Adventism. And by 1849, they had a message. By 1849, they uh, renounced the error of the closed door. They opened the door back up. They began to print. They began to proclaim. And for the next 50 years, they went about this nation that was mostly believers, and they proclaimed our distinctive messages. At the very top of our distinctive messages, what do you think was at the top? The Seventh-day Sabbath. And this being part of the three angels' message. By 1849, we were on the road, beginning to preach and teach. Something else happening the other time in history, when you start talking about creation, and you start thinking about it. From 1831 to 1839, there was a brilliant British naturalist named Charles Darwin from Cambridge, who sailed around the world in a ship called the Beagle. He stopped at many places, Galapagos being one of them, by the way, and he began to make observations to begin to to compile thousands and thousands of pages of his observations in nature. 
And by 1844, he publishes an essay, Darwin's essay of 1844. Get the date? It's the precursor which eventually is published in 1859 as the origin of the species. Do you think sometimes that those dates and everything are by accident? So I won't say it's the first time in history this in six days is being challenged. It isn't the first time in history, but it's challenged in so public and popular manner because it, becomes, it comes after uh, the, the earthquake, if you will. It comes after the reign of the beast. It comes after 1798. The church can't lock up or burn heretics for making uh, statements like, we weren't created in six days by a God. Evolution brought us about. Darwin could do this now without fearing his life. Right? By the way, praise God he could now do it and not lose his life at the hand of at least those who proclaimed to be the church. Oh, it was a church, right? It just wasn't the church of the lamb that was slain that would martyr somebody for having a scientific or an alternative view of creation. So now it's, no, it's not in six days. 570 million years. Just look at the column, and it, and it just adds up. There we go. And all of a sudden now, the, the gun goes off. Now it's a debate, arguing, debating. Science once again becomes the supposed enemy of the Bible and the church. In this country, scopes and religious liberty laws and what we could teach in public school and what we can't. Fighting, debating, fighting, debating. And in the middle is supposed to be this church that has the answer to the fight. Creation, the creators. Think about it. The two creators are fighting now over the proclamation of how we came to be. So are we surprised to know this? But the debates and the arguments, is that what's being prophesied here? The debate and the argument of how we got here, the debate and the argument of evolution versus creation as a power, is that really what we think this loud-voiced message is about? I don't think it is. And here's why. It's about creation. It's about creators. It comes back to, again, the church of the lamb that was slain and the church of the beast, each having their own gods and each having their own way of worship. We studied for weeks the false worship. But let's look at the creators. Back in August, I, 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 what, the, the sermon that I did, I, I, I called it a tale of two creations. We were looking at uh, the gods themselves, the the. the <laughs> the creators that the two churches claim to worship. We looked at them themselves and their methods, right? So we look at the Genesis creation, we look at the biblical creation, and we listen to the language of our creator. I'll leave the fourth commandment and go back to Genesis 1, and it says, God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it, and God saw that it was good. You know what was good about it? Is that the creation yielded, it gave, it brought forth. It gave of itself so that others would benefit. Why were there uh, trees yielding seed and, and bushes yielding seed? Who was it for? So we could eat. And God said, let there be domes in the, in the sky. Let there be lights in the dome of the sky, of the sky to separate the day from night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. Lights are for seasons and days. The, the whole reason the cosmos is out there is so that you and I can know seasons and days. The whole reason it's there. Signs given. Light gives life. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. He gives it to them. Everything they had was given to them. In fact, those next two verses that talk about plants yielding seed being given to humans and animals for food. The sky is giving, it gives lights. The earth was giving, it gives plants. And all the creatures had to do was to learn to give to each other and to him. And as long as they trusted him and walked and talked with him, they would have everlasting what? Everlasting life. There was a govern of rule over this. God decided what kind of rule this would be. So what kind of rule is it that all things created and living don't live for themselves, but they live for purposes outside themselves? What do you call that? What do you call it if I'm able, to, or if you're able to completely live outside of yourself for the benefit of somebody else? What do you call that? What do you call the rule of this God, the rule of this creator? What was it he created this earth to be? What is the rule? So that we know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. The whole language of the creator. This creator decided somewhere along the line, somewhere in a point in time in infinity, he said, I'm going to rule by love. It's gonna cost me. It'll cost me worshipers. It'll cost me children. It'll cost me eventually my son. But this is what I'm going to do. See, now the other church has a creator too. And you may not realize it, but Satan can create. Now, I don't believe he can create one iota of life, but he can create a rule. He can create a governing force. And he has his own language of creation. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows, Eve, he's keeping something from you. He says he loves you, but he hasn't told you the whole story. He's keeping things from you. He's not giving you the good stuff. Look at me. 
I know the good stuff. Knowing, not giving, but keeping. Satan begins a division where there was none before. Just by getting her to ponder that. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Guess what? They're no longer in it for themselves. Right? They're no longer in it for each other. What they were created for each other to be and each other to have, they're now keeping it. They're now hoarding it. They're now hiding it. Why? Because they can't trust each other anymore. They don't trust each other with their nakedness. They don't trust each other with their vulnerability. They begin to protect themselves from each other. By the way, they're gonna have two sons that are gonna ultimately protect themselves. Cain was protecting himself against his brother. One generation away, we are murdering now in order to be safe. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They even hide themselves now from God. They don't trust him. They feel that they need to protect themselves from him. Taking away his joy, by the way, because his joy was that relationship. Should have been ours. By the way, thanks to this end time message, thanks to the lamb that we worship, it can be ours today. We can still have that joy. But the whole reason they were created. Now he tells them, your desire shall be for your husband and he will what? He will rule over you. You know, I pointed this out before. What didn't, what didn't happen before with their nakedness was that Eve had nothing to worry about with Adam. She could trust herself completely. But now there's a look in his eye that she's never seen before, and she does not trust it. By the way, if you take a gender that, for the most part, let's just say for the most part, I'm not making huge, broad generalizations, but you take a gender for that, for the most part, is physically stronger than the other gender, and now you give him a selfish nature, what do you think's gonna happen? Even the creation begins to protect itself. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. It's not gonna yield itself anymore. By the way, he has to protect the creation because what would we do with it if creation couldn't protect itself? We'd take every last bit of it, wouldn't we? We've proven that. So what do you call the ruling force then that takes and does not give where the weak is preyed upon, where only the strong survive, even to the point where entire species of living things adapt and change and shape and function to make sure that the strongest is surviving and maintained. What do you call that? It's called evolution. I don't believe that evolution is the origin of any living thing, especially humankind, but evolution certainly is the ruling force of the creator that created this kingdom. Creating a force where all God's living things have had to live since the fall. Evolution is the perfect rule of creation in a world that no longer is capable of the love in which it was created. Now things die 
But they have no choice. Evolution takes care of that. By the way, the church of the beast, evolution works perfectly for. Because if you're using fear, force, coercion, riches, power, money, evolution is the driving force behind all of that. It's the perfect driving force to govern his church. So, back to the beginning then. Back to the beginning of what he said. Phone megale, the loud voice. Has, has it been loud as evolution defines loud? See, if you're yelling at me a point and I want to make my point better than you, then what do I do? I yell louder. That's evolution, right? By the way, it's the definition of violence that we looked at a couple weeks ago. You know, you hit me, I hit you back, right? Starts a, starts a cycle. In this particular case, it's the same. The beast is yelling awfully loud. He's got what seems to be a good message. We studied it for 16 weeks. It, does the angel come back now and, and, and yell louder? Is, it, is, is that what it's about? Just shouting louder than the other? Mounting up evidence to win? More and more, louder and louder? Just to prove that it's Saturday? Just to prove when sundown is? Just to prove what's acceptable and what's not on the Sabbath? Just to prov- prove its origin, its presence and continuation? Is that what we're here for? Just to tell people that they're wrong? Evolution would be satisfied with that, wouldn't it? But that's not what this loud voice is about. See, this loud voice is in the mouth of the lamb. And by the way, when it came time to defend himself and to use his voice, Isaiah 53 said he didn't use it at all. He uttered not a what? Not a word. And like a lamb to the slaughter, he went. See, we can see others as targets for debate. Oh, they worship on the wrong day. So we must target our evangelism towards them. Pretty soon, by the way, if it gets even more contentious, we pretty soon begin to look at everybody else as enemies to the gospel. That this is a war. And if you're not with me, you're against me. It's hard not to. The dragon started this. His churches went to war. They've been fighting actual war for 1,260 years. And even when they quit killing people, actually taking the life from them, well then pretty soon that second beast weaponizes the gospel, weaponizes the cross, turns it into a sword in the old worlds and the new worlds. Is that what loud is? Does the angel need to get louder than that? Or is it lamb loud? See, how loud is love? It's powerful, but it's not loud, right? In fact, if you're in a relationship where one person is expressing his love all the time by yelling, pretty soon you begin to question whether or not that really is love. Right? Love is not loud. And where does it reach? 
Where does love reach? Where does the angel say it will go? It will go wherever the lamb goes. So the loud in the message is its reach, not its volume. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a woman who went to bake bread and she put a little yeast in the dough. And what happened to it? How loud is that? Every time I think of yeast in the dough and rising, I think of the smell and I actually think how quiet the kitchen is when it's happening, right? It isn't loud. It isn't winning a fight. It's not winning a debate. Loud is its reach. It goes where? Everywhere. The loud message is this reach. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every ethnicity, every bit of humanity, that's why the message is loud, is that it will reach everybody. That's what it means. We're not supposed to use the tools that the evolutionists use. You know, and when I think back, when I look back at the very time that we had it, our method of evangelism was exactly what I'm about to say. Our method of evangelism was we picked a fight. And in a lot of ways now, we still do, don't we? We picked a fight. We'd go to a town that didn't, never heard of these brand new Adventists before. We'd go to the town square. We'd put up a big old poster telling everybody in the town, every Presbyterian, every Methodist, every Baptist, telling they're worshiping on the wrong day and that they have the mark of the beast, and if you want to know how not to have the mark of the beast anymore, see that tent that's being pitched outside of town? Come on out and listen. (laughs) Would you go? Oh, I would. You just told me? You just told me, a believer in Christ, that I'm wrong? Oh, man, you're in for it. What time is this meeting? You know, and we'd win that fight. Why? Because we had the evidence. We had the debate points. We got good at it. One of the things we didn't notice, though, was that we were only recruiting people who were good at fighting. So that by 1888, when maybe we're supposed to recenter and refocus that message on a message of love and the love of Christ, the church never accepted it. Probably still hasn't to this day. Our scripture reading was another telling of the Ten Commandments, retold from the wilderness experience to the promised land. Even the Ten Commandments have two completely separate readings based on where they will be when they begin to live them out. In Exodus, they were designed for living in in the wilderness. Uh, in, in, In Deuteronomy, they were designed for when we live in the promised land. And the one thing that is, that's contained in Deuteronomy that isn't contained in the Exodus one is this verse right here. Remember that you were what? That you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of from here with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Sabbath isn't a doctrinal point in the first angel's message. In fact, the first angel's message is not a doctrinal point in Adventist doctrine. It's a living of the gospel. It's salvation and redemption and atonement 
The only thing that can reconcile us to God, it's that message, not just preaching it, not just proclaiming it, not just looking for evidence that that we're it. One of the reasons why we will look for more and more debate points and more and more evidence is that we're afraid that we're not it. Love casts out fear. If I really believe that I'm saved, redeemed, and completely atoned with God and that I have Christ's righteousness right now, I'm not afraid of anything. It goes beyond debates. It goes beyond arguments. It goes beyond when and what we can do and can't do, what we should do and what we ought to do. One of the things that we used to debate on what's... on. on how much work can we do on the Sabbath and get away with it? That's, that's the way that I, that I always put this debate. How much work can we do you know, on, on the Sabbath? And, and what, is one of the, uh, what is one of the benchmarks that we use? One, is, one of the workers is that if, it, if, it, if your ox is what? If you or your neighbor's ox is what? It's in a ditch. How have we heard it explained? The first time that it was ever explained to me was, was hey, they're living in old times where, you know, ancient days when the ox was their only way of making a living. So, so that's a very, uh, at the time, that's a very 20th century interpretation of that. In other words, if your livelihood is at stake, you can violate the commandment. Right? That's what we were told. But actually what Jesus says, he goes, the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger, lead it to go get water? You guys are compassionate enough to untie, okay, which is work. Because you untie the donkey and the ox every day when you go to work. So that's work, you do it. Then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? (laughs) It didn't occur to me until two years ago that what Jesus was saying was not a mark of uh, the amount of work that you're allowed to do. What he was saying was, you guys, (laughs) people are more important than animals, It didn't hit me until two years ago. I bought the argument. My very first church, we had a young single mom who had been attending for three years before I got there, and by the time this happened, she'd been there for two. She was living in a house, and, she, uh, and, and the uh, renters uh, uh, terminated her lease, and she needed to be out, and she misunderstood the time that they were supposed to be out. So she was at church on Sabbath. We had a great Sabbath. She had a great time at Potluck, and it wasn't always that way with this, this poor girl. This poor girl just seemed to have every curveball in life thrown at her, and when she gets home, her landlord is standing there wanting her out and out now. So guess who she called? Me. And here were her words, Pastor. I know, she said, I know what you're doing right now. You're resting, but I have a problem. And she said, and she told me what, what was happening, and she goes, is this an ox enough in the ditch for you? Well, 
I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't even think of the ox in the ditch, but probably in my head I'm going, oh, of course this is an ox in the ditch. Of course this is. So I've, I felt good about it. My problem was I didn't own anything but a minivan, okay? I needed a truck. So I called my head deacon and I told him, I said, Charles, I need this because we gotta go, I gotta go, go, go move her shell out. I gotta get her out. They're, they're threatening to, you know, to, to bodily remove her. I gotta go do that. Can I borrow your truck? Well, Charles said, yeah, you can borrow it on one condition, that I come with it. And I'll never forget the question that he asked me driving over there. He says this, just, just picture this. He says, Pastor, I love helping people. That's, that's what I love, love to do. I just love helping people. Isaiah says, I'm supposed to refrain from my own pleasure on Sabbath. <laughs> that was his dilemma. That was his dilemma. But a couple years ago when this hit me, I thought of Rochelle, and I thought, good gosh. She was with us for five years. She listened to me preach for two years, and we still taught her that she had to prove she was an ox in order for us to help her on the Sabbath. How loud is love? It's louder than any point of debate. But we've got to refrain from the temptation to use it. Because that's the dragon's way of getting stuff done. Dragons fight, debate points, arguments, evidence, what the Bible says, what it doesn't say. And then it others everybody else that doesn't happen to see it that way. And that's when love ends right there. And I believe that's when the loud voice is now the dragons, which means now it's just, it, it gets heard just because it's loud. Doesn't matter what the substance is behind it, it's just louder than everybody else. The lamb's loud is love. It's yeast. It's quiet. It may not change anybody's mind but it gives everybody the opportunity to change their mind. And that's what we're looking for. See, the beast would take away the opportunity. Fear, force, coercion. The three angels' message, this volume, this is lambs loud. This old farmer and his uh, wife lived in this land ever since Joshua gave them the land. It's been there for two, 300 years. So they got used to this because it was right in between, almost exactly in between the Galilee and Jerusalem. And so it happened often that he'd be out in the fields and it'd be just about an hour before sundown and he's, he's wrapping up, he's getting ready to go in and he looks out of the corner of, the eye, of his eye and he sees a traveler coming. So he knows he's seen it before. It's an hour before sundown. It's about to be dark. It's about to be Sabbath. So he walks out to him and he says, look, um, can I help you with anything? And of course, he doesn't have any food. He doesn't have any water. He's probably been traveling all day. And he said, why don't you come? My wife just have, have, will have dinner uh, pretty soon. She's fixing it right now. I'm just wrapping up here. Why don't you come with me? Come in, uh, sit down, have a meal, and, um, and, and we'll do that. And he says, you don't, why are you doing that? You don't know me? I just walked up here. You don't know me. You don't know what, you know, what I'm capable of. You don't know who I am. 
And he goes, I'm not worried about that. He said, why? Because I was once a slave in Egypt. And the Lord (sighs) delivered me with a strong arm and a mighty hand. And that's why I extend my rest to strangers on the Sabbath. So they went in and it was a beautiful meal. And he was partaking by the prayer that she said over the candles and everything. It was just gorgeous. And he, and he figured he didn't want to overstay his welcome. He said, so I better get going. And he goes, he said, where are you headed? He goes, Jerusalem. He goes, you know, Jerusalem is still a day and a half. You're not going to get anywhere tonight. Why don't you stay with us? Nothing will be open between here and there. You know, there's, there's no inns. There's no nothing. It's Sabbath. You know, why don't you stay here with us? And he goes, why, why would you want to extend that to me? It's, it's small. I don't want to cramp you. I don't want to overstay my welcome. And this time, his wife answers, because we were once slaves in Egypt. And the Lord delivered us with a mighty hand and with a strong arm. And it's because of this that we remember the rest that we try to give everybody on the Sabbath. So he does. He wakes up the next day. She has breakfast waiting for him. Have breakfast, and he he thought once the the sun really gets high, then then you know he he'd better get on his way, you know, and everything. And and uh, and after breakfast, uh, she get you know he 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 tells him that uh, goodbye. He tells him thank you and everything else. And the farmer says, "Hold hold wait a minute, hold on." I said, "Look, we can give you enough, but it's not enough that's going to get you all the way to Jerusalem. And there is nothing open between here and there because everyone else is, is, is closed for the Sabbath and, and it's not enough. Why don't you stay here with us? Why don't you stay with us today? We're just going to sit around and we're going to, we're going to pray. We're going to talk. We're going to sing. We're going to, uh, you know, I want to, I want to get to know you. I want to hear your story. You can hear a little bit of ours. And he said, okay, well, I, I don't know why you do this. And the farmer says, because we were once slaves in Egypt. And the Lord delivered us with a mighty hand and with a strong arm. And it's because of this we offer our rest, his rest, to you on the Sabbath day. So they spent the whole day, dinner, sundown comes. It's, it's, it's strange to him, but a beautiful ceremony that, that she takes the candles that she lit the day before and, and she extinguishes them and they say prayers and everything else and they go to bed and it was just a wonderful time, just a beautiful time. And they get up the next morning and she has breakfast waiting for him and he looks over in the corner and his knapsack is full of food and his, and his water skins are full of water and, and, and he's ready to go and everything. And he gets everything, he puts them on, he hugs me, kisses them. he says, I, I can't tell you how wonderful a time it was and I really, I really don't understand. I've never received anything like this before. I don't know why you would do this. And just as the farmer begins to open his mouth, the traveler goes, but I bet it's because you were once slaves in Egypt. And the Lord delivered you with a mighty hand and a strong arm. And it's because of this, you observe, keep, remember his rest for us. First angel's message. Thanks for hanging on.